Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Sunny Megatron from American Socks, a podcast about life, liberty, and the pursuit of fuck. Ooh, that's kind of a trashy first impression, isn't it? I'm so sorry. Okay. <clears throat> On American Sex, Ken Melvoinberg and I explore our guests' deepest, darkest sexual secrets, hang-ups, fantasies, and victories. Each episode reminds us that in this fine country of ours, no matter our differences, we all want and deserve the same thing. Freedom and happiness and f- find American Sex on iTunes, Stitcher, and most podcast services, or at americansexpodcast.com. Hello and welcome to the Halloween spooktacular scare edition of the partly political broadcast, aka episode 79. I'm Tien and or to continue with the tedious Halloween theme for this week, I'm Finn and Booyeb. And this year, my Halloween costume is just me dressed up as a tweet from a reputable site just saying breaking news. Because really this year, doesn't Halloween feel a bit pointless? It's kind of more of a pity fest for ghouls and ghosties who were scary until 2017 happened, and now, if anything, being chased by a terrifying murder clown down a dark subway would be a blessed relief compared to checking the headlines. Similarly, celebrating the capture of Guy Fawkes on fireworks night because he tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament now feels like it should be a day of mourning for his failure as the government seemed to be doing a good enough job of destroying the place all by themselves. But back to Halloween, as this past week a definite spectre has been haunting Westminster, as the ghost of inappropriate behaviour has clearly been walking the corridors of power for quite some time. And yes, that is much less of a jump scare and more of a creepy, long-lasting sense of horror that many of us have had for ages. This past weekend, a number of allegations about inappropriate behaviour from MPs were revealed, including a story about International Trade Minister and a man who, if he was a horror film, he'd be the in-descent MP Mark Garnier. He referred to his former aide as sugar tits and he made her buy two sex toys, something that he described as, hey, good-humoured hijinks, proving that A, he doesn't have a sense of humour and B, he's a creepy, horrible prick. 
His former aide, Caroline Edmondson, who stopped working for him after the incident, said Garnier's versions of events were lies, something that he seems to be quite good at considering his past record of campaigning against tobacco smuggling whilst receiving gifts from Japan Tobacco International. Garnier is currently under investigation, but considering that he now has two sex toys that he allegedly inappropriately forced his poor former aide to buy, I really think he should go fuck himself. Prime Minister and only person to be afflicted with a living dead career, Theresa May, said that she will take tough action to get new safeguarding procedures for parliamentary staff, saying that the current ones lack teeth. But with Tory aides having compiled a list of 36 Conservative MPs who've conducted inappropriate behaviour, and the Times reporting that May gets weekly updates about the sexual indiscretions of her MPs, yet still keeps them in the Cabinet, it seems not so much that the safeguarding procedures lack teeth, but more that Theresa May lacks a spine. You do start to wonder if the skeletons in many of Westminster's closets are actually just compiled of various missing bits of current serving ministers. Jigsaw stunt double and environmental secretary Michael Gove did his usual trick of making matters massively worse by making a rape joke on the Today programme on Saturday morning, where he compared being in a room with John Humphreys with being abused by a perverted whale carcass and sex-offending film producer Harvey Weinstein, because he said, with both, you hope to emerge with your dignity intact. Something that after telling that supposed joke, Michael Gove fails hugely to do. Here's a better gag, Michael. Hearing a Michael Gove joke that trivialises rape culture is like being in a room with Michael Gove, because both times you think, what a total cunt. This isn't just a Conservative issue, obviously. This is a cross-party one, as Labour MP and dummies curse Jared O'Mara was suspended last week and is now under investigation for his sexist and homophobic social media comments, or as they're known in 2017, everyday tweets by a man online. And there are also allegations about other Labour politicians and a Lib Dem peer as well. It is upsetting and worrying, if sadly unsurprising, that the abuse of people is so prevalent in a place full of those who abuse power. Labour leader and let the left one in, Jeremy Corbyn, said that MPs who abuse or sexually harass women must be held to account, though I think it would be best for everyone to avoid holding them at all, if possible. It is now up to Parliament to deal with this quickly, as this story is no doubt going to grow with more names being revealed. But with the Times reporting that Downing Street are concerned about two senior ministers who've been implicated in inappropriate behaviour as their resignation could destabilise the government, I worry that considering they're willing to overturn the whole country with Brexit just to keep power, this story, like a terrifying Halloween tale, will be buried alive as soon as possible. Commons leader Andrea Leadsom has proposed grievance procedures to tackle sexual harassment in Parliament and she told the Commons that everyone had to keep their house in order, something that she, as a mother, is very good at doing. Putting Andrea Leadsom in charge of proposing grievance procedures feels a bit like putting Mr Blobby in charge of carefully handling your firework display. I mean, it's pretty amazing that she didn't just suggest that everyone should be a bit more patriotic and then try to sell them some jam. Meanwhile, when it comes to the never-ending fright fest that is Brexit, concerns were raised this week when it was revealed that Conservative MP and dead slow Chris Heaton-Harris wrote a letter to all UK university vice-chancellors demanding that they declare what they are teaching students about Brexit and a list of teachers' names. This sounded very much like a McCarthyite request, with hints that if the universities had any pro-Remain bias, they'd be in trouble. And I hope that many of those universities quickly wrote back saying, sure, we'll do that, but only if you send us all those unpublished government reports detailing the impact of Brexit to ensure we teach our students using only facts. It was an odd move from a party who only the week before were criticising universities of demeaning free speech because they had to set up safe spaces, but it's now evident that that's because it's much harder to storm into a safe space and kick out anyone who's not being patriotic enough about the government's decision to shoot both its feet off at once so it doesn't have to share its shoes. 
Heaton Harris insisted that the letters were simply research he was doing for a book, and I now realise that this may all have just been an innocent attempt to actually find out what on earth is happening with Brexit with information from actual experts, considering his own party don't seem to have a fucking clue. In other terrifying tales, the Department of Health is proposing hospital patients recuperate in strangers' homes in a sort of NHS Airbnb operation to free up beds because they've clearly never seen Stephen King's misery before. I mean, what could be more relaxing than being immobile in an unknown home with carers who have no training at all and you can't even choose what you watch on the telly? Are they hoping it'll persuade patients to feel so uncomfortable that they'll heal super quickly just so they can go home rather than make yet more shitty small talk about X Factor with someone whose only employable skill is having a spare room? It does feel like this is just Health Secretary and the thicker man, Jeremy Hunt, and his team trying to work out ways of fulfilling their lifelong dream of having someone die in their own home and getting away with it. <laughs> and lastly, to a true American horror story, American President and Baba Crook Donald Trump. The Mueller investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election has stepped up and Trump's election campaign adviser George Papadopoulos has admitted to lying to the FBI about meetings with Russian go-betweens they had previously said were before he worked with Trump, but now admits that they were during the campaign. Yes, it turns out he's had more Russian connections than Aeroflot, and one of those connections promised him dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. While this could all be hugely damning to Trump, the White House has of course said that they don't understand why all the focus isn't on Hillary Clinton. To which everyone readily agrees, but not exactly for the same reasons as Trump does. Hey, hey, hey! Um, I know Halloween is going to probably be over by the time several of you later week listeners hear this show, but it is nice to have a theme, isn't it? And with this last week of news, uh, I mean, really, the theme could only have been Halloween or the prevalence of sex offenders in society. And as a comedy podcast, it is much easier to find the funny and fictional monsters than real ones. So Halloween it is. Um, it is so depressing, isn't it, that it wasn't just the clocks that went back on the weekend, but also societal progress. Well, hopefully this podcast will vaguely lighten your dark evenings and be more of a treat than a cruel trick. Um, incidentally, do you think magicians ever get tired of people supposing that the choice is trick or treat rather than the possibility they could be mutually exclusive? I mean, who knows? Um, what I do know is that if you really want to scare your friends this Halloween, why not just delete your social media accounts without warning and not answer their calls for a year? Hilarious. Right, um, Halloween tips aside, thank you as always for tuning into this show. Um, do you tune in? Does anyone tune into anything anymore? Wow, how did I get so old? Um, and thank you to those of you who sent very nice comments about last week's interview with Awate, uh, and also to regular listener and linear note contributor Cat Day, who asked if I could point out that some of Awate's comments on schooling were based on his own experiences and not a comment on schooling today, which is something I should have said on last week's show, uh, but I am an amateur, so I forgot about that, sorry. Um, and Cat's message also reminded me that while I did interview someone about the education sector about a year ago I haven't done since then so little questioner for you the listeners the ear receptacles um, how regularly should I have guests on to update about things that are constantly big issues you know such as education or the NHS or Brexit things that seem to be in the news all the time um, should I have people on about that once a year twice a year six times a year um, let me know because it is kind of hard to know how much to focus on one area when there are so many messes 
to discuss all the time. Um, also, last week's ep was a long one with my really snotty voice. I listened back to it after releasing it and went, wow, I was more ill than I thought. Sorry about the, all the extra phlegmy bits. Anyway, it was a very long one, that episode, and I've realised that checking the stats that a chunk of you never listen past 38 minutes. So the question is, should I be making this whole podcast thing shorter? Um, if so, which section would you like to see go? Uh, I regularly listen to quite long podcasts and I'm kind of low to cut interesting bits of the interview out because people always have interesting stuff to say um, so I could maybe make them shorter and add more bits to the Patreon or something else um, but look if you have any suggestions let me know at Bro on Twitter the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com um, if you're a long time listener those contact methods should now be embedded in your brain like an 80s Saturday morning kids show telephone number um, if you're under 30 seriously just ask someone 5 to 10 years older than you what the live and kicking telephone number was it will stick in the recesses of their brain until death guaranteed um, thanks this week to Harriet, Helen and Aaron who have all pledged to the Patreon that is hugely, hugely appreciated and if you too wish to donate to keeping this podcast going please do so at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or a one-off to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro and if you're as bored of me plugging uh, those things as I am then either just donate to those things I mean if enough people donate to those things um, I will stop going on about them um, or if any of you want to make jingles or suggest a donate jingle that I could do uh, let me know because I'm finding it very hard to find a beat that goes with me just reading out a URL. Um, also, thank you to A Cold Twenty Four for the lovely review on iTunes, uh, where they said that the only negative thing is that they keep getting Brexit fallout in their head when it's mentioned in lectures. Excellent. That is all I want from this show. If no one ever listens to it again, uh, then at least I've ruined learning with homemade earworms. Um, I do hope you've not let Chris Eaton Harris know about those lectures, or he'll get properly upset. Um, so yeah, again, if you haven't reviewed the show, please do so. It really really does help other things this week um, firstly as I mentioned last week I'm doing my Ed Fringe show for the very very last time in London at 2 North Down which is right near King's Cross Station uh, and that's on November the 19th and tickets are only £5 and you can grab them from ticketext.co.uk um, I will be filming it as well so please do come otherwise it's just going to look rubbish on the filmed version where it's like me shouting at an empty room it's kind of it'll be like less a comedy special and more something that needs to be in black and white with moody French music that might do well at Cannes but nowhere else um, um, secondly, uh, once you've all bought tickets to that, um, I am a bit late to this, but hopefully, uh, I'm telling you this in time that some of you can still catch it. Um, my comedic pals, Johnny and the Baptists, uh, Josie Long and brilliant uh, folk singer Grace Petrie are all doing a comedy tour together called Lefty Scum. Uh, they started last week and they're doing dates all across the UK till November the 9th. Um, so search for the Lefty Scum comedy tour and you should find all the details. They're still doing lots of places in the country, uh, including Liverpool. That is the only one I can remember. There's like other ones as well. But I remember Liverpool. Um, anyway, all they're all excellent. They're all very funny people. It will be a brilliant show if you like left-winged, tinged political comedy, so you should head along. And if you don't like left-winged, tinged political comedy, I mean, why are you listening to this? What, what are you doing? This is a big chunk of your life, weirdo. Um, right, this week, and by popular demand, and, well, also, the news. Um, I have interviewed political writer Liz Castro all, all about Catalonia's bid for independence, and we had quite a long chat. So, there's not a lot else this week, but there will be a little bit of Brexit fallout, just enough to fuel your nightmares for this Halloween week. But, of course, before any of that hoo-ha, here's this ha-hoo. Northern Ireland still has no government. Imagine that. I mean, I can't work out if that's better or worse than a government who's there, but everyone wishes they weren't. Sadly for Northern Ireland, because there is still a deadlock on the power-sharing agreement between Sinn Féin and the DUP, it looks like they may now be ending up with our shitty government as well. 
Theresa May has said she doesn't want to inflict direct rule on Northern Ireland, and I'm sure that's not only because of the problems it could cause in the area, but also because she's had enough trouble being in charge of the rest of the UK as it is. But with the deadlock now lasting 10 months and the gaps between the two parties being reported to have widened, but with the deadlock now lasting 10 months and the gaps between the two parties being reported to have widened, which is really not a good thing as it was already the sort of gap that a train announcement would have been less appropriate for than, say, an unstable rope bridge, it does now look like the UK Parliament will have to set the Northern Irish budget. This budget won't include the £1 billion pledge to the DUP that May promised as part of the confidence and supply deal with the Conservatives, as that is only agreed for if a power-sharing agreement in Northern Ireland is made. But what it may include is a salary cut for the members of the Legislative Assembly, who, despite not having sat since March, have been receiving their full salary. I mean, to be fair, if I knew I could get paid to not go to work, I'd refuse to share with other people as well. But as it is, with a salary cut pending and without the £1 billion, the DUP don't need to be supporting May in the UK Parliament, and without their own assembly, no one is really supporting Northern Ireland's place in Brexit talks either. So, none of this is ideal. And I can't help but wonder that if Sinn Féin and the DUP really can't agree anytime soon, then maybe it's just time to let third place take over as some sort of consolation. Or maybe give it away in a raffle. Though with things as tricky as they are, I really wouldn't be surprised if the winner asked to swap for the second prize bottle of wine instead. A review by the Care Quality Commission says that young people have unequal access to mental health services. Yeah, you know, those young people that also have worse wages, less access to benefits, little to no chance of housing, and have to understand how Snapchat works. I mean, how do you do it? I can sort of make me look a bit like a cat and then I'm really stuck. Anyway, those ones that probably need mental health services more than any other generation, and they really can't get them. The review said that 40% of services in England needed improvement with long waiting times, lacks of support while young people were waiting for care and issues in many areas with access to services. The head of the NHS's mental health services in England said that there's been a 15% increase in spending on mental health treatment for young people in the last year, but there are also 5,000 fewer mental health nurses since 2010. And if you include nurses who aren't categorised as mental health nurses but work with patients who have learning difficulties, then the number rises to 7,000. So 15% more budget isn't really that helpful when there's not enough nurses to use it. It's like saying there's 15% more musical instruments for an orchestra that doesn't have enough musicians to play them. Sure, I bet the Philharmonic will sound really great with no wind section, but instead three one-man bands. Health Secretary and man who constantly looks and speaks as though he's just stood on a rake, Jeremy Hunt, said that he needed more time to fix the mental health crisis, despite him now being in office as the Health Secretary for five years. I bet he used to turn up to school and complain that he hadn't done his homework as he ran out of time, only for the teacher to tell him that he should have left school ten years ago and please could he now leave the classroom as it's upsetting the pupils. Jeremy Hunt proclaimed on the Andrew Marr show that Rome wasn't built in a day. True, but if after five years Hunt had been in charge of Rome, then that empire would have been defeated on the 22nd of April 753 BC by a light breeze that knocked over the only construction they'd managed to make in that time, which was a mock-up of a straw dog kennel. The relationship between Catalonia and Spain appears to be that of a globalised Ibsen play. Catalonia, self-sufficient, years of its own history, wants to go out and be independent, away from its long-suffering relationship with Spain, but Spain cannot bear to let it go, and so expresses its love for Catalonia and fear of loneliness by enforcing it to stay. 
Just like all Ibsen plays, this will either end with someone storming out, killing themselves, or however ghosts ended, because I dozed off during that one while I was in sixth form at school. God, it was boring. Yeah, so that analogy doesn't really work, but what is clear is that the situation in Catalonia is far, far from over. After the Catalonian Parliament declared independence last week, the Spanish government dissolved them in what must have been a huge glass of water. <laughs> See what I did? Anyway, and then they declared direct rule, stripping Catalonia of all autonomy, which is the exact opposite of what they wanted. I mean, imagine trying to do a flat share with the Spanish government. I'd say, hey, I'd really like to bring my toy lightsabers to the flat. They'd say they don't want them there. I'd bring them anyway. And then next thing I know, they'd have shot George Lucas. So now there will be a regional election in December where the Catalonian leader, Carles Puigdemont, can stand up if he hasn't been arrested by then for defying the government's orders and upholding the independence referendum. And over the past weekend, pro-unity protests have been rallying in Barcelona from all those who wish to stay part of Spain. It's almost like these fights for independence are tricky and cause major division. Not that we in the UK would know anything about that or anything. <clears throat> so what does all this mean? Why has it happened? And will no one think about how the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain? Is no way as good as you only get pneumonia in Catalonia if you stand by the begonias. So, as many of you have been asking me on the Facebook and Twitter groups, this week I finally spoke to an expert about it all. Liz Castro is a writer and translator who currently lives in Barcelona and she has spent the last few years writing about the Catalan independence movement. Her most recent book, Many Grains of Sand, a sourcebook of ideas for changing the world tried and tested in Catalonia, is all about the peaceful activism of the Catalan people. Now, as is probably obvious by that little introduction, Liz is a pro-Catalan independence voice, and I should say that there are pro-union voices out there, but I haven't spoken to one of those. I've spoken to a pro-Catalan independence person, and it's also worth noting that, as Liz mentions, many news sites say, hey, it was only 90% of 43% of Catalonians that voted for independence, but then many were stopped from voting by angry violent riot police, so it's really hard to get exact figures. Though, on this past weekend, Spanish paper El Pay had a poll where 55% of Catalonians respondents were against independence and 41% were for independence but again that's in a paper though again it's supposedly a centre-left and more independent paper but then again it's also kind of a tabloidy paper so hey look who really knows uh, all I know is that Liz was an absolute delight to talk to and the chat with her was hugely hugely informative about the current situation I should also say that we spoke last Wednesday and of course tons has happened since then so with all of that to bear in mind I hope you enjoy here is Liz Castro the first question is probably quite a, 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 a big question to start with. But in the UK, we're, I think we're quite unaware of the history of Catalonia. Um, and I know that looking things up, um, it's been kind of seeking independence since the 1600s, really. But why are Catalonia seeking independence now? What has kind of kicked this off uh, this year? Hi. Um, well, that is a very big question, of course. Uh, Catalans consider themselves to be a thousand-year-old nation. Um, their first, uh, they first, you know, they, they, they point their history back to the year nine, eight ninety eight or something like that. Um, but it's, and, and, you know, then they had, they in fact had a, an empire that, um, included Sardinia and Athens and, uh, Sicily. That was in the 1200s or so. Um, their dynasty dies out and then they have a, a king from, Andalusia, who then his grandson marries uh, Isabel, so Ferdinand and Isabel. That's the, the kind of very quick story about how Catalonia was joined with the rest of uh, the, the Iberian Peninsula. Um, but in during that period, the, the two kingdoms, 
um, were supposed to maintain their own rights and privileges. And the um, the Catalans had um, a, a parliament already. They had some sorts of representative government. They had a completely different relationship with their king than, than um, the Castilians did. Um, and that comes into a head in 1714. There's a, the War of Spanish Succession in which the Catalans back the Austrian pretendant and the uh, Castilians back the, the Bourbon and the, the Castilians win um, with Felipe V, Philip V, um, partly because the English back, on, uh, back out on their commitment to supporting the Catalans, I have to admit. Um, that was <laughs> Queen Anne. very surprising, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's when there's a siege in Barcelona, it lasts a year. They they uh, launch 40,000 bombs on the populace, which is a town of about 30,000 at that point. Um, and Barcelona finally falls on September 11th, 1714. Um, September 11th is now the Catalan National Day. They, they commemorate that day, uh, that day of defeat, um, in, in sort of in a way to kind of remember, you know, that this is important, this is what happened. Um, and from that moment forward, the Spanish monarchy um, abolishes the, the use of the Catalan language um, and, and a whole slew of repressive measures. Um, they raise the, the city, uh, the part, a part of the city, and they build this huge citadel next to it, which is actually where the parliament is now, um, so that they could uh, keep Catalonia down. Um, Catalans, however, keep being Catalan for, you know, the following 200 years. And, and there are waves of um, trying to maintain um, sometimes more publicly, sometimes less, sometimes more politically, sometimes less, uh, the Catalan language, the Catalan literature, this um, entrepreneurial spirit, this um, just their, their very existence. Um, and there's a couple of attempts at um, forming a republic, uh, or at uh, promoting more democratic forms of government in Spain. The Spanish government, you know, is very, very chaotic in this whole period between the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and that all kind of culminates, it's a very quick history, but in in, in the 30s, where Catalans again try to, um, or in the 20s, again, try to have their own self-government, and Spain clamps down and says, no, there's a civil war, and Franco comes to power and brutal repression again prohibits the Catalan language and culture and all sorts of things, which leads us to the and Franco dies in his bed in 1975, and um, the in 1977 before the Spanish Constitution. This is important. The Catalan government is restored. The Catalan government um, was in exile. They had elected a president, and he comes back. Um, it's actually the anniversary was yesterday, the day before, um, and and celebrates the the restoration of the Catalan government, which dates again to the 12th century or so. Um, and then there's the Spanish Constitution. Um, the answer of the the so-called transition in Spain to this question of Catalan, the Catalan nation, and the Basque nation and the Galician nation all peoples in Spain that have their own languages and histories and cultures is to um, dilute those nations by dividing Spain into 17 kind of arbitrary, what they call autonomous communities. And each of those communities has 
communities, their regions, or um, each of them has different amounts of competencies um, to, to speak about it in the sort of Scottish sense. And um, each of them have their own parliaments. And uh, here's the idea that Spain is the quote unquote most uh, decentralized power in in Europe. Uh, it's not true, though, because um, they, particularly it's not true because they have continued to bring back, to, to draw back many of those competencies. Um, but anyway, the, the, the reason for setting up those 17 was to say, all right, well, we've got, you know, Extremadura and we have Madrid and we have Castilla-La Mancha, um, and they are just like Catalonia, um, even though they have nothing. They're, they're, it's, there's no uh, point of comparison between, um, you know, a, a region of Spain and a nation like Catalonia or a nation like the Basque Country. Um, but anyway, the Catalans said, you know, this is the best we can do. Okay, fine. And they they approved that constitution in, in 1978 um, in an attempt to 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 make it work, make this relationship work, and to make the democracy work. Um, and in the, the 30 or so years that follow, or maybe 40, um, they do, they make a best faith effort to, to, to work together with Spain, to make the democracy work. Um, and, um, but, but, but the relationship starts to fray because Spain is extremely centralist and it wants to control everything. All of the transportation goes through Madrid, all of the, you know, the Spain taxes Catalonia and then. Uh, it gives back what it thinks that Catalonia should uh, should have, and that has resulted in um, recognized uh, lack of infrastructure spending in Catalonia compared with the amount that it um, gives to Spain's coffers and taxes, and uh, compared with simply its population. Catalans are 16% of the population, but contribute 20% of the GDP, make up 25% of exports, and only get 10% of infrastructure spending, um, which is, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy, crazy. So, so the Catalan said um, in around 2000, they said, we need, to, we need to have a better relationship with Spain. We want to propose a new statute of autonomy um, for Catalonia, which is like their charter, like their own constitution. Um, and it was a perfect moment to do that because there was... Um, a, a Catalan government ruled by the socialists in Catalonia, and there was a, a Spanish government in Madrid that was ruled by the Spanish socialists, and those parties are, you know, sister parties. Um, and they and the Spanish government had promised that it would approve uh, whatever came out of the Catalan parliament. And so, between 2000 and 2006, there's this huge negotiation about what's the, this new statute of autonomy, what it's going to include, and how it will be able to improve this relationship between the Catalans and the, and the Spanish. That was the, the purpose behind it. And there's huge negotiations, and um, what the Catalans proposed at the beginning is not at all what they got in the end. The Spanish are ridiculously arrogant about it. They laugh um, publicly about how much they, you know, got the Catalans to back down. It's a kind of a humiliating process. And again, the Catalans say, all right, well, this isn't as much as we wanted, but it's better than what we had before. Um, some of the parties end up not being able to support the, refer the um, statute in the referendum that they have, but it passes anyway. That's in 2006. It, it passes the um, 
in referendum by the Catalan people, it passes in the Catalan parliament, it passes in the Spanish Congress, it's signed into law by the Spanish king, it becomes a law, and people are not at all satisfied with it. But even then, the um, Rajoy, the current Spanish president, and his party say that's not good enough. We don't even want you to have that much. And so they file a suit against that statute of autonomy. They collect four million signatures around Spain to say that Catalonia is not, should not be allowed to call itself a nation. That's one of the things that they cannot stand. Um, and it shouldn't be able to use to consider um, the Catalan language as a, uh, it shouldn't be able to give preferential status to the Catalan language, particularly in administration and in schooling. And those are two huge things for Catalans. They're really, really important. The Catalan language is, 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 is fundamental. And takes four years for that uh, suit by the by the Rajoy and his party to make it to the constitutional court. And there's all sorts of other weird things that um, there's judges on the constitutional court that should have been relieved, that should have been replaced, but that aren't. There's political appointees. There's there's all sorts of weird things. There's a couple of them that actually die. Um, so there's not the, uh, the quorum that there should have been, blah, blah, blah. In 2010, the, constitution, the Spanish constitution, constitutional court rules in favor of Rajoy and his party and strips out those really important things for Catalans. And Catalans say, all right, we're done. I'm sorry. We, we, we follow all your rules. We play your game. And you keep, you know, asking for more. You keep pushing it. You keep going, nee, 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 nee. and why? Why is it so important for you to not let Catalonia call itself a nation? Why would you not respect and appreciate the, the amazing variety of people and ideas and languages that you have in this country? Why do you insist on, on, uh, on being so awful about it? And so, and so, that's, so, so the ruling is on June 28th, and on July 10th, a million people come out on the streets um, in Barcelona to say, you know, we're done. We are a nation. We decide is the slogan of that demonstration. That is a huge turning point. Um, but then there's other things that have been going on before that. So I mentioned the, the frustration that people felt about the negotiations about the statute. And there's a couple of, back in 2006, so there's a couple of demonstrations, small by our standards, about 100,000 people in 2006 and 2007. And people start to mobilize because they feel like they're not not getting heard. And there's um, a, a platform, a, a group called the, the the Right to Decide platform. And they start saying, you know, we, we have a right to have a referendum to decide what we really want, you know, how we want our government to be in Catalonia. And still there's, you know, 10, 15 percent that are really in favor of independence at that point. Um, but they start to mobilize. And um, one of the things that I love about this whole process is that there have been these kind of quixotic um things, proposals that the events that people have have um, have carried out that at first glance you think, that's really silly. That's not going to lead anywhere. Why are you wasting your time doing that? And that actually end up being a spark for huge things. And one of those things is um, happens in the fall of 2009. Um, it's we're right in the the, the middle of this, politicization of the constitutional court. The, the ruling hasn't been handed down yet, and people are frustrated. They don't know what's going to happen. And and um, and in this little town, 
uh, of about 8,000 people, about a half an hour north of Barcelona. It's called Arrens de Moon. They decide that they're going to have a local poll on independence. And, and you think, yeah, like, what kind of effect is that ever going to have? Like, who cares? Um, but the but they pass in their city government, they pass a resolution that they're going to do that on September 13th, 2009. And this is in June. And the, the Ciudadanos Party, the Unionist Party says, wait a minute, you're not allowed to have a, a poll, even a non-binding, non-official poll on, on independence. Who, who do you think you are? You can't ask people what they think. And they bring it to a judge. And the judge says, absolutely, this is, you know, illegal. You're not allowed to ask people about about independence. And so she annuls the um, the plenary motion asking for this, this poll in this tiny little town. And people get bent out of shape about it. They're like, what do you mean we can't, you know, ask people's opinion? And at the same time, there's this fascist group, the, the Falange, which is one of the old 1930s era parties, um, that supported Franco, that say, you know what, we're going to go demonstrate in the Rennes that September 13th. And um, the judge this time says, yeah, that's absolutely fine. It's freedom of expression. And so wow. those two things <laughs> counter, you know, and they're, they're tiny, they're, you know, that's, but they get people's attention. And all summer people are talking about this, you know, quote unquote referendum that's going to happen in this little town. Um, and it draws so much attention that that and, and so instead of doing it in the city hall, which was their original plan, they decide they're going to do it in the civic center next door, like a community center. And um, so that to, to avoid the because, you know, you can ask whatever you want in a community center, but sure. they do it as officially as they possibly can. They ask people, people have to be a resident of this little town. They have to show their ID card. They have a computer system to make sure that nobody can vote more than once, et cetera, et cetera. And more people vote on September 13th than voted, for example, about the statute of autonomy a couple of years before. And there's a huge, I mean, it's not huge, maybe it's 40%, but it's completely non-binding, non-official. The government doesn't support it. Um, and people come out and, and the, the whole town is filled with people who are curious about what's going on. The fascists come and they make a, um, there's uh, the fascists come in a bus because who knows where they came from, from Madrid, maybe, I don't even know, but not very many of them. And there's, um, there's a, a group that comes between them and the townspeople to make sure that there's not, you know, any kind of fighting. Um, the townspeople start, they organize a fair on the other side of town with a big, huge picnic and a barbecue and music and whatever to draw people away from, from you know, getting into any kind of altercation with the, with the fascists. The fascists finally go away. Um, but so many people come to Arrange the Moon that day and they're like, wow. I'm not the only one who thinks maybe this is an interesting idea. And a couple things happen there. One is they leave that town and they go back to their own towns and they say, I think we should have a poll in our town. And in the course of a year and a half, there are more than 500 of these non-official, non-binding polls all over Catalonia. More than 800,000 people participate by voting. And um, they... And they're they're all non-official, so like they don't count, right? But all of these people are organizing and creating these local committees to organize these polls, and they're learning how to be activists, and they're learning how to, um, you know, uh, organize the committees and talk to the press and create pamphlets and put up a booth and give out information and talk to people who maybe they're, you know, against and explain all of the arguments behind the pros and the, the, the contras and, you know, why is this a good idea? And, and this 
gr huge group, this huge infrastructure of, of volunteers gets um, gets gets organized, gets built, and um, and and that is a, a huge piece of this whole process because it's really this ground up. Uh, this not ground up, but this from the from the ground up is what I'm trying to say. Movement of people who who want to be heard. And yeah, it sounds, it's very, it sounds very it's very grassroots, isn't it? It's, it's uh, totally I don't particularly like the word organic, but that's what it is. It's kind of yeah. you know, it feels like it's a very people driven movement. Um, it is, it is, it is. Because I mean, and that was then, one of the things I wanted to ask you. You sort of hmm. mentioned. Sorry to cut you off there, because I know there's there's more to to yeah. bring us to this point. But one of the things you mentioned earlier was the financial um, implications of this, mm -hmm. in that Catalonia mm -hmm. bringing more into Spain than they were giving out. But I, but it, it feels from what you're discussing already that the financials is almost a side. Um, points to the pride and the identity issues. Absolutely, it's well. It's not. I don't even think it's pride and identity because, um, well, there's there's a couple of things. One is this all starts. Remember back in two thousand five, six, seven. That's before the financial crisis. This is not about the money. The the financial crisis, which hits really in two thousand nine, and 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 is a real factor in two thousand ten and eleven. Um, is more of a spark. It's more of a catalyst. It's more of a, wait a minute, we've been trying to get along with Spain all this time, and now they're telling us that when the European Union increases the amount of debt that they're allowing Spain, Spain's not passing on any of that increased debt to Catalonia, and we're going to have to cut all of our social services and education and security forces, but Spain is going to keep padding all of its extra ministries and corruption and whatever, that's not right. Um, you know, we're doing our part and they're, again, they're screwing us over. Um, so, so but, but that's kind of a, an added thing. There's really the, the basic, for me, the basic issue here is that Catalans want to be able to decide. They want to be able to choose. And Spain consistently says, you have no right to an opinion. What it says in the Constitution is that Spain is indivisible. Sorry, go home. <laughs> and that's not good enough. Not in a democracy. No, not so. I mean, but why is Spain so threatened by the idea? Because, it, you know, is it? I know Rajoy's got a minority rule, hasn't he, at the moment? So is any kind of challenge to, you know, if, if Catalonia was to go independent under his rule, does that damage his reputation? What is it that, that oh, yeah. why are the Spanish well, government being so violently against this? You know, I think there's a couple of reasons. Spain has always been very centralist. I mean, that goes back, again, 500 years. For me, it goes back to the expulsion of the Jews in 1492. Um, because not only do they eject this entire population of educated, you know, doctors and scientists, and, and then the Muslims in 1509, um, and so they push out all of these people who are different and it's not only that they lose those people at that point, but then for hundreds of years, there's this feeling that, and this is what the Inquisition is about, um, that you have to be pure to be Spanish. And, and to, to get ahead in Spain is to be, to, to, to not have any of those, you know, subversive <laughs> roots. And, and so the Inquisition is, is, is to, to make sure that, you know, you're a real Spaniard, you're a true Christian, et cetera, et cetera. And, and any kind of, of progressive movement that may come down from France, say, um, in the, you know, the, the 18th century with the French Revolution and with, um, 
you know, all of those new rational movements, those are rejected as your, you know, your, you, we can't, we can't, we can't deal with you. And, and so there's this, this, this constant kind of inversion and isolationism and centralism that's kind of basic for me to, to Spanish history. And, um, and so, and, and then there's a, a piece, I, I believe there's a piece of pride. I think that they, they are sincerely hurt that Catalans might not, Catalans and Basques, for example, and many Galicians may not want to be part of Spain, and that's hurtful. And so they say, no, 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 you can, we're not, we're not going to accept that. You have to be uh, Spanish. It, it, the, the worst, so ironic to me, on, in social media, on Twitter, when, when you get into an argument with somebody who's really, really unionist, many times they end the argument by saying, you're Spanish whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait, wait. I, I thought, don't you think being Spanish is a good thing? Why are you acting like it's something I'm stuck with? Like, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, I mean, if you want people to want to be part of Spain, you have to let them. You can't force them. I mean, Mariano Rajoy's speech the other day, um, he says, you know, we're going to apply this Article 155 to, uh, to ensure Spanish unity. Well, that's not the way to do it. That's not the way to do it. In fact, that's what is breaking Spanish unity because if they had wanted to keep Catalonia, it would have been really, really easy. Catalans are amazingly conservative. Um, and it's you, you look at what people are doing and you think, no, that can't be. But they really are. They're very traditional. They're very conservative. They like things to be... Um, I mean, I think this is true of people in general that they... they um, they like the status quo. Change is hard. And Catalans, I think, particularly, they're like an old European country. They have a way of doing things. And, and for them to be pushed so far to say, you know, we're going to um, demonstrate out in the street and stand up to, to riot police that don't let us vote, that's, that's Spain's fault. And Spain could have, you know, said, first of all, they could have just asked, like, what's going on? What what are you unhappy about? How can we deal with this? You know, you want to speak Catalan. Catalan is an amazing language. It has incredible literature. Why don't we teach Catalan all over Spain? Because why not? It's part of our heritage, if they think it is. You know, it's a quote-unquote Spanish language. Why don't we... You can... It's easier to study Catalan in Germany than it is to speak to, to study it in Spain. There are more universities that teach... Um, Spanish in the United States or in Germany or I think in the UK as well, then teach it in Spain. So, I mean, that's for me, that's an indication of how Spain looks at its uh, plurinationalism. It does not appreciate it. It wants to stamp it out. And yeah, it's that strange thing of wanting, like you said, it, I don't understand, you know, and it's in a relationship, you wouldn't want someone, you wouldn't want to try some, to persuade someone to stay with you by kind of almost holding them hostage. Um, that's not right? a, it doesn't really make sense. And I mean, and one of the things that we saw all around the world was the footage of the, the riot police on referendum day oh. was absolutely terrifying. And it was horrible. You know, I mean, is 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 there a real fear that if, if Spain are resorting to those kind of tactics, that it's going back to the kind of violent Franco politics? Is that is, that they they want to go for this authoritarian rule with Article One Five Five? What's is there a worry yeah. that that could happen? Um, yeah, absolutely. And they're not only saying that they're going to apply One Five Five in Catalonia now. 
Now they're saying, oh, well, you know, it's, they, one of the PP guys the other day said, well, you know, there are the same ingredients in the Basque country. Um, and so they're envisioning applying 155 there. Or, in fact, in a um, in uh, an autonomous community called Castilla-La Mancha, which is just near Madrid, they're saying, you know, maybe we can apply 155 here. Or yesterday they said in Navarre, you know, maybe we can. It's, it's a way of, of using... Uh, the Spanish constitution to acquire power that the PP has been unable to acquire democratically by voting. And whether they're going to use violence in Catalonia, uh, you know, up until October 1st, people were like, no, they wouldn't do that. And now, gosh, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. What I do know is that Catalans aren't going to use violence because we know that it's not effective. The our, our most effective strategy is exactly what we're doing, which is nonviolence. It's standing up to them. I mean, I think that those images, those horrific images, got people's attention. But I kind of feel like the way that Catalans stood up to them and, and with their hands up in the air, singing and chanting and saying, we're going to vote, was what kept people watching and what, what, what you know, attracted support. And it's, it's real. It's totally real. I mean, people... They just want to vote. They want to be able to choose. And they, you know, in a democracy, you should be able to choose. It shouldn't be okay for Spain to say, you know, I'm sorry, it's written into the Constitution that your parents signed in 40 years ago that Spain is indivisible. And therefore, you know, any movement against that is against the law. No, laws can be changed. There are laws that are not democratic, and that is one of them. Um, you know, there have been laws throughout history that have been non-democratic, laws that kept, um, you know, black people from being able to vote in the United States or that kept them as slaves. That was all illegal. People, votes that kept women from being able to vote, votes, people that, um, laws that kept gay people from being able to be married. All those things were legal and they were wrong and they're not democratic. And so to be able to, to fight against those, to fight nonviolently against those laws is, you know, for me, it's the obligation of any Democrat. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
And we'll be back with Liz in a minute, but first... Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! I'm one of those sorts of people who, uh, when getting a new device, I just like to skim read the first few pages uh, about getting started, and then I press a lot of buttons and assume I will just work it out as I go along. More often than not, that obviously means that within a few weeks I've broken it and I then have to cry down the phone to someone at tech support and waste hours of my life listening to panpipe versions of songs that were boring before they were even reinterpreted through an instrument so dull that a strong wind can only be half-assed to play it when it's in a garden. But look, that's some sort of tech device. If you were to hand me the future of the UK with a manual, I'd go through that manual meticulously, even Google translating the bits in other languages that are basically the first bit of the manual repeated just in case they said something that the English bit had missed. So it completely baffled me when this week, Brexit Secretary and a man whose mastermind subject would probably be wrong answers to things and then he'd still fail to score any points, David Davis, when he said that Theresa May had only read the summary outcomes of the secret Whitehall Brexit impact reports, but not read every excruciating detail. If the Prime Minister pays such little attention to minor crucial details on the future of the UK, I feel like it's almost worth rejigging the Apple agreement just for her, so it says in the small print that clicking OK means she agrees to resign as Prime Minister. More than 120 MPs have signed a letter saying that they'd like to see these Brexit impact reports, the contents of which very few outside the Department for Exiting the EU know about, but they have released information on the 58 sectors that they've looked at in the reports, which apparently amount to 88% of the economy. But, again, they've only put very limited information on there, and that information says things like, I'd like to see zero tariffs on goods, which, I mean, sure, of course they would. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen. I'd like to see my old pair of trainers turn into gold bars, but considering I'm not a wizard alchemist and how uncomfortable it would be to pop to the shops in a pair of gold bars, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. The DEXEU are still insisting that they won't be releasing the full report, though, because they say that doing that would undermine their negotiating position. Yeah, you know, like how me showing you my hand of cards undermines my poker playing position, especially when you realise I have a set of animal snap cards and all my chips on the table are made of Play-Doh. What I take this stance of not releasing the reports to actually mean is that the reports predict that Brexit isn't really going to be that great for the UK. Because if the last few years of major film studio releases says anything, if those reports were good, the government would at least do a little teaser preview trailer, you know, with various highlights to a little bit of Led Zeppelin, and then we'd all get really excited at all the Easter eggs and cameos that appear. But by not revealing those reports, it probably just means that they're hiring Damon Lindelof to rewrite the ending ASAP. One of the bad bits of information that may or may not be in those reports is that the EU have warned the UK that it may take up to 30 years to repay Britain the billions of euros it has paid into the European Investment Bank because that's kind of how investments work. Still, it does mean that by 2054 the UK will gain back the 3.5 billion euros it has put in and that'll be great as it can be used to be invested in all the things the UK hasn't been able to afford for the previous 30 years on account of all the Brexit costs and losses that amassed way more than 3.5 billion pounds. Meanwhile, Baroness Anna Ley is the third minister to leave the Department of Exiting the European Union in just four months, although she has cited that it's due to the worsening of an injury sustained in 2015, rather than anything happening in the department. I mean, I'm sure banging your head on the desk constantly for the past year won't have helped. Figures released by the department show that they have lost more than 20% of their staff in the last 14 months, which I guess, if nothing else, does show their commitment to leaving. 
So if having Brexit handled by a mostly empty department full of people who've not read the manuals for it wasn't enough to make you wonder about the future of Brexit, Theresa May has said that she is confident that MPs will have a vote on the Brexit outcome before we leave, which is good, but she did also have confidence in the snap election earlier this year, so it's really not saying much. But if it does happen, it could mean that if MPs vote against whatever deal May's government proposes, that could trigger yet another general election. And hey, we bloody love an election in the UK, we do, don't we? So it'll be brilliant. That's what we all want. Bloody hell, we have so many that I predict my 2025 will be on three elections a year with the best of compilation at Christmas. And to be fair, by 2025, we probably still won't have any idea what on earth Brexit means either. And now, back to Liz Castro. Mm, absolutely, and uh, but has it made has it made things more difficult? That because the EU is sort of backing the Spanish government on this and saying that it's oh. an internal decision, um, that makes things a lot more difficult for Catalonia, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's really been disheartening to see the reaction of the European Union and journalists around the world. I have to say, um, taking Spain's line that this is all about an illegal, quote unquote, illegal referendum. And, you know, that that what what that Spain should just have to deal with it itself, that I mean, the European Commission, the Monday after the referendum said that Spain had used reasonable amounts of force. Ridiculous. I was just out, outraged. I mean, there were a couple of uh, members of the European Parliament who spoke against that violence and even in favor of Catalonia's right to self-determination, but very few. And you think the European Union was supposed to be based on human rights and on, um, you know, equality and on, for me, what I consider progressive values in the, the Charter on Human Rights is the right to self-determination of any people. That includes Catalans, especially Catalans who have consistently used peaceful, democratic mobilization to demand what they want. I mean... For me, it's the, the basis of uh, 21st century democracy. And for the EU to be just saying, you know, we're a club of states and we have to back up, you know, one of our member states is hugely, hugely, hugely disappointing for me as a, as a Democrat. Because I'm just like, I mean, how can they not be supportive of, of, a, of a democratic uh, movement? And, and surely it's going to affect if, you know, if Catalonia are able to go fully independent, then will that affect their standing in the European Union? Will they be able to join what's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of issues that raises for the future as well. But, um, absolutely. The, um, the, there are certain commissioners in the, in the EU um, on the council who have given their personal opinions that Catalonia will and one not be able will be kicked out of the EU will not be able to come back until um, you know it goes through all of the various uh, rigmarole for being part of the EU etc cetera, etc cetera. nobody actually knows that there's not an official EU policy and there's not an official EU policy because Spain has not requested there to be one there's no official legislation of the EU that says what will happen if a state if if a, if, a, if a country divides into two states, because who knows what will happen to Spain? Spain will be a completely different entity. Will it be able to continue being part of the EU? Uh, what kind of representation will it have? Poland will be then larger than Spain. So will Spain lose a huge number of its um, of its members of parliament? 
And, you know, those are questions that also need to be responded to. But but the reality is that Catalonia is a 200, more than a 200 billion euro economy. There's more than 4,000 multinational companies that, that are here. It has a border with France. Um, and it is in nobody's interest to make it difficult for Catalonia to continue being part of the EU. Um, up until October 2nd, most Catalans wanted to be part of the EU. After the, the disgraceful reaction from the EU, there's been a lot of people who are like, you know, what do we, we don't need the EU, forget them. They, you know, where, what, are they, what are they doing for us? Literally. And, it's, and, and, and Catalans have never been Eurosceptic. They're extremely open, they're progressive, they're pro-refugees, they're um, egalitarian, um, and they, they, they definitely wanted to be part of Europe, but there's a lot of doubt about it. Um, but anyway, that so and but 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 right now, you know, seven million Catalans are already EU citizens because of their Spanish citizenship. According to that very same Spanish constitution, you can't actually lose, you can't be stripped of your Spanish citizenship if you were born with it. Um, so what's going to happen to all those citizens? How is the EU going to strip them of their EU citizenship if they have Spanish citizenship, which gives them EU citizenship? And if Catalonia already fulfills all of the requirements for being part of the EU, how are they suddenly going to be out of the EU? Um, and in terms of the euro, uh, nobody needs permission to use the euro. Catalonia can use the euro if it wants to, just like Andorra does, just like other countries do. Um, and even if it were true that uh, the EU will somehow shoot itself in the foot and, and push Catalonia out, um, which it certainly did not do with Scotland. It, you know, when, when uh, after the Brexit vote, they were banging down Nicola Sturgeon's door, saying, "No, no, we really want you to stay. You should be able to stay because you voted to stay, et cetera, et cetera." Right? Uh, I, I think they will do the same with with Catalonia. Um, but even if they don't, there's other options. There's EFTA, which is you know a, a group of countries, including Norway and Sweden, excuse me, Switzerland, which have trade agreements so that. Catalonia doesn't get uh, damaged by being, quote-unquote, outside of the, the, the European community, um, that are alternatives. So um, I don't think the EU would let Catalonia go. And sure. uh, I, I mean, it's not in anybody's interest. To have, it's not in Spain's interest. Imagine Spain having two borders between its tomatoes and its markets. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. No, no, not at all, not at all. And I mean, and and one of the things, and sorry, because I cut you off right at the beginning of, mm. of our talk about leading us right up to now. Um, mm. When I messaged you on Twitter, you said, uh, and this is going to go out after this has happened now. So apologies, listeners, uh, we, the news will be ahead of us. Um, yeah. But you said that Catalonia is going to uh, will be announcing independence on on Friday. Um, <laughs> or, 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 That's what uh, they said. will be right. So they will yeah. be. So what mm. do you? think is going to happen next because uh, you know is is this gonna you know there's these fears or there's been this talk of it's going to result in another spanish civil war the way that spain are dealing with this do you think it will go that far or do you think there's a possibility for negotiations where where do you see things going in the next few weeks months whatever well there's one big thing that could help spain come to the negotiating table and that is its debt Spain has a trillion euro debt, um, and uh, it's 105% of its GDP, something like that. Um, and Catalonia helps pay pay that debt, 
But that debt belongs to Spain. And that debt is very important to the rest of Europe. And if Spain wants to pay that debt, and if Europe wants Spain to pay that debt, it would do very well to listen to Catalonia because Catalonia has the ability or not to contribute. That debt is in Spain's name. Um, and so for me, that is what might help Spain not um, push this into a realm that nobody wants to go to. <clears throat> um, and I mean, I can't imagine that Spain would, you know, start a civil, an actual war, but I don't know. They seem a little unhinged to me, to be honest. Um, and I can't imagine that the European Union or the rest of the world would just look on and say, oh, that's an internal matter. Just let them squash those people into the ground. I can't imagine that would happen. But given the events of the last 10 days or two weeks, I'm not sure. What I do know is that that Catalans um, have shown a capacity to resist Spanish control um, that is very great. The, the Spanish government for months, for a year, said there will be no referendum. There will be no vote. They said it over and over and over again. There will be no vote. There will be no referendum. There will be no ballots. There will be no ballot boxes. And there was. They were absolutely incapable of stopping it. Why? Because Catalonia has a government that promised to have that referendum because it had a mandate from the people and because it has this amazing civil society network of people who are willing to work to make sure that happened. The story about how the ballot boxes got to the to the um, polling stations is fascinating. The Catalan government ordered ballot. This is in a in a I assume they did. I don't even know all the details. I assume that a lot of this happened during the summer. But you have to think about this environment in which the Spanish government is closing websites, websites that only ask for participate, participation in the referendum. It's not even pro-referendum, uh, pro-independence websites. They confiscate millions, literally millions of posters, posters that say democracy, posters that say yes. That's all. Posters that say, hello, Republic, you know, imagine sub, such sub, subversion. They arrest 15 high-ranking Catalan government officials who are conceivably organizing this referendum. They um, harass people. They There's all sorts of things. This is what's going on as this referendum is getting closer and closer uh, in the last month. And, but, and a you know, at the same time, the Catalan government has ordered during the summer, I think, 10,000 ballot boxes from China and had them delivered to this little town in France <laughs> called Elma, a, a town that was was significant for um, helping and, and uh, welcoming Catalan refugees at the end of the, the Civil War. So 10,000 plastic ballot boxes um, arrive in this little French town. And then people start to distribute them all over Catalonia, but surreptitiously, so nobody knows where they are. Wow. Um, it's amazing. It's and incredible, yeah. It's incredible. And on the morning of the of October first of the referendum, those ballot boxes appear in cars, um, in vans, 
in, in inside plastic boxes. They're all hidden. In the polling place where I was, I think it was about 7.20 in the morning, and there's this knock on the door. <laughs> and we're like, oh, my God, they're here. And we run. It's a, it's a side door of the school because there's like 300 people in front of the main doors protecting the polling station from, you know, some imminent attack from the Spanish police. And then this side door, we hear this this knock, and and everybody runs. The, everybody, the people inside, we run to the door. We open it really quickly, and people run in with this plastic garbage bag with these these ballot boxes inside. And then they run back out again. And then we, you know, bring them into the room. And and I wasn't involved in. Setting them up because I wasn't one of the official people, but um, but it was it was you know like a spy movie, and afterwards um, I was talking to this guy in another town in another place about how that happened, and and he he told me he was like I was one of the people who hid those ballot boxes in my house, and I had them for I don't know how 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 many weeks or months, and he said and I have a friend who we go to breakfast every single morning and have coffee and a croissant. And um, we get there to the polling station. I bring my ballot boxes, and he brings his ballot boxes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, I had no idea. <laughs> it's awesome. And that's happening in, I don't know, 4,000 polling places all over Catalonia. These, these people who had hidden ballot boxes. Think about this. In a democracy, you have to hide ballot boxes from the police and then spirit them to the polling stations and then protect them from these marauding riot police. And, you know, the clincher is people voted. More than two million people voted, even in these incredible conditions. And the, all these journalists, they keep saying, when I've been doing all these interviews, and these journalists keep telling me, yeah, but there was only 40% participation. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know what they had to go through to get, to, to get there? It's amazing that there was 40% participation. It's incredible. And, and, you know, this active boycott, informational boycott, uh, physical boycott, violent boycott. It's incredible that they were able to, you know, make it work. And not only that, there were more votes in the referendum than there were in the elections. Um, the more yes votes in the, in the referendum than there were votes in favor of the of the independence parties in the elections in 2015, and there were more votes then than there were in the unofficial poll in November 2014. That is that it's it wasn't just some you know random number. It wasn't just you know 500,000. No, no, no. It was a significant number. It was, it was more than the previous numbers. It was amazing. So so if you say, is Spain gonna apply Article 155? Tell me how, because I don't see it happening. I don't see how they have the infrastructure, the power, the, um, I just, I, I don't, I don't see how they're going to do it. On the contrary, I think Catalans have, you know, this incredible network of people poised to, to implement, to put into, to make a reality, the, the Catalan Republic. That I do see happening. Mm, absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like, um, you know, with this kind of uh, strength of of will and determination for the people of Catalan, that anything would would stop them now. Anyway, and and any attempts of Spain to to do it in any other way than peaceful would be really dangerous. I think, and and uh, it feels very foolish. Um, agreed. Agreed. 
Yeah, um, I, uh, very, very last question, really, and thank you for that. That's, I feel like I'm really up to speed and everything. It was incredibly useful. Um, I just wanted to ask, as I ask all the guests on this podcast, um, obviously, listeners should follow uh, yourself and uh, check your Twitter. That's what I've been doing for lots of information on Catalan. Um, but have you got any journalists or commentators that you could recommend um, that they also follow or anything you think that they should read um, that you'd recommend as a good kind of um, guide or a good place to go for further information on things happening there? There's there's a couple of people that are pretty interesting. Um, one of the, the ironies of this whole Catalan independence process is that Catalans um, value so much their own language, as well they should, that most of what is published about Catalonia that's, you know, balanced and that really has a that 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 really describes what's going on here is in Catalan. Um, and there are, of course, few people outside of Catalonia who speak Catalan. So that's that's a that's a tricky part. Um, but there are a number of English language, um, and there are more and more of these English language uh, news sources. There's Catalan News, which is part of the um, the the Catalan public broadcasting system. Um, there are English versions of El Nacional, uh, of VilaWeb of um, ARA, which are three um, Catalan newspapers. The, the last one is also in print. Um, and there are a couple of foreign journalists who've been getting it pretty close. Uh, Paul Mason, his, his articles have been pretty good. Uh, some of the articles in The Guardian are not too bad. The <laughs> ones by Stephen Bergen are awful or terrible. Um, you know, it's such a such a mix. For me, I've been really disappointed in much of foreign journalism because, particularly the editorials in the last week, that all call for. Um, I think the New York Times called for a, a broker, and the I think the Guardian called for mediation, and you know some response from the EU. And I'm like, wait a minute, what about the Catalan people? Why don't they get to decide? Like, why do we need some, you know, other foreign power to come in and, and, and help when, you know, it's Spain that's keeping Catalans from speaking. And I, I just have so little confidence in, in some foreign power who has a vested interest in the status quo being an impartial uh, an impartial voice, because I, I think that mostly the world would like to see this problem go away by itself. They don't really want to get involved. They don't want to, you know, delve into what's really going on. And, you know, and, and, and even if they did, like, who are they to decide? You know, I, I just, if, if, if mediation means getting people to talk to each other, that's one thing. If mediation means, um, you know, voicing the the desires of established states who clearly don't want to share any of their power with a with a country like Catalonia, I'm less interested. And that's that's what I've been seeing in the papers, in New York Times and the Guardian and other places. Just like you know, why aren't you saying we should listen to what Catalans want? Because that's for me. That's what would be democracy, is having the people decide. The one thing that I would accept, apart from this declaration on, on um, we're not sure if it'll be Thursday or Friday, um, is if Spain agreed to 
a, an official binding referendum according to their own laws and agreed to implement that result afterwards. And they agreed to do it within, say, 30 days. And that will never, ever happen because Spain has always refused to listen to what Catalans want. But, I, but that would be okay with me. I, I mean, there are many other people who are like, no way, we already decided, we already voted, we already voted three times, this is enough. Um, but, if, but if that were on the table, you know, I, I don't have any problem with having the actual real, um, real by Spain's standards referendum. I think this was real. If this, this referendum on October 1st was convened by a parliament by the majority in a parliament that was elected in the highest turnout elections in Catalonia's history in 2015 on a platform that they were going to hold a referendum, that they were going to seek independence. That's democracy. Hmm. The people mobilized, elected this government, said, we want a referendum. The government said, okay, here's a referendum. I think that, that then you listen to the people. Thank you to Liz for talking with me. Um, as I mentioned at the start, we chatted last week. And since then, so, so much has happened in Catalonia. So hopefully that interview gave you a good enough build up and background to be able to keep up with what's going on now with uh, Spain dissolving Catalonia's government, uh, their threat of direct rule and the regional elections that are now going to take place in December and all of that stuff. Um, and I will also take a look on this podcast where things are at there in a few weeks as well. Um, until then, do follow Liz Castro on Twitter at Liz Castro, L-I-Z-C-A-S-T-R-O. Uh, her website is LizCastro.com and her most recent book Many Grains of Sand is available in all places that sell books and not in places that don't sell books you know like Halfords you won't find it in Halfords though judging by how unhelpful the staff in my local Halfords are you won't find anything in there unless you complain a lot and then begrudgingly go and find it yourself so look who do you want me to talk to uh, please don't say someone at Halfords I really can't go through that again I mean interview wise on this show if there's someone you'd like me to interview then please let me know and I'm aware there are a ton of issues that I'm hoping to find someone to talk to uh, at the moment all the way from the sexual harassment in parliament news to to what's looking like now China's lack of an upcoming election to catching up on education stuff to the elections in Kenya and so on and so on and so on but look your ears are the most important ones um, and I do hope that you're looking after them in this cold weather try some earmuffs um so drop me a line and let me know what you would like to hear you can contact me on here we go again at purple bro on twitter the partly political broadcast facebook group or partly political broadcast at gmail.com or you can send a raven which i understand is a very effective method in game of thrones though i do live in an area where quite a lot of people own cats so i worry by the time it turned up it would just be sort of half a raven with a message that has severe feline claw marks in it and doesn't really make sense and all you've done is endangered a bird well done It's much better to just email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. And thank you, as always, for listening. And don't forget to review the show on your podcast app of choice. Donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi.com accounts if you can afford to. And please just generally spread the word and maybe, I don't know, tell everyone you know that they have to listen to this as it's one of their five ear fruits a day. I don't really know what an ear fruit is, but I reckon if you say it with enough conviction, at least one of your friends will subscribe and another one of your friends will probably try and put a banana in their ear, which will be hilarious enough to make the whole thing worthwhile. 
Thank you again to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the music and his podcast, Thanks for Trying, and his new album, This Is Where It Gets Good, can both be found on iTunes and other music providers and definitely not in Halfords. Really, just don't go to Halfords. I'll be back next week when Michael Gove's debut appearance on Live at the Apollo gains reviews such as being in the audience for Michael Gove's stand-up appearance was like being the survivor of a terrorist attack in that he died horribly but we've all got PTSD and we'll never ever forget it however hard we try. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Chris Heaton Harris's new book, Tis the Treason, How to Disguise McCarthyism Behind a Thinly Veiled Writing Deadline Excuse. Available from all patriotic bookshops now, but definitely not from Halfords. Hello, partly political listeners. I'm Barry McStay. And I'm Ben Vanderveld. And we'd love you to listen to Worst Foot Forward, our podcast all about failure. Each week, we're joined by a guest to discuss the world's worst something. From superhero to astronaut, conspiracy theory to environmentalist, we dive into humankind's darkest depths in search of the absolute pits. And your very own host, Mr. Tiernan Duyeb, has joined us to discuss the world's worst political protest, where we learned why Pokemon Go is cruel to animals, and why Milky Vomit speaks louder than words. On Worst Foot Forward, we've learned why rocks aren't really hard, why lacrosse can cause military catastrophes, and what cheese pairs best with seagull wine. While also uncovering hordes of rampaging mink, brothels shaped like vaginas, and why Pac-Man is the sexiest bunch of pixels you've ever set eyes on. Subscribe to Worst Foot Forward on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Follow us on Twitter, at WorstFoot, and join us for some fun-filled zero worship. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.